they then take the letter to the dispensary. I have no idea what products the dispensary has. I say, ask the so-called bud tender what <laughs> oh, they, no. that's what they're called, what they <laughs> they feel would work best in your situation and try it. Yeah. Do the and, bud tenders have special training or I, I feel oh, almost silly asking good... that, but... <laughs> Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with multiple co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Well, hello. Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, guys. And Dr. Molly Hoyblind. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, Molly, we're so glad to have you back on the show. This is awesome. Thanks for finding us such a great guest for tonight, Molly. Yeah, I was glad to be with available and willing to join us. Yeah, I he's he seems way too qualified to be talking with us, but we'll we'll <laughs> we'll fake it. We'll fake it and uh he'll never know. Uh guys, what do you what are your thoughts on picks of the week? Do you want to do very quick ones or Yeah, sure, why not? You okay. can always cut it out if it's too long. Okay. <laughs> Molly, did you uh, did you want to give a pick of the week? Uh sure. So I was I was thinking about this beforehand and um it's not a book, but it's a, a donating to the Red Cross. And so here in San Francisco, we've just been surrounded by the smoke here and the, the wildfires in Sonoma and Santa Rosa are you know, okay. still burning now. Um, and it just really kind of hit home with me in, in terms of just everything that's gone on with the hurricanes down south in Puerto Rico and Louisiana and Texas and then the tragedy in Vegas and just being really thankful that um, I'm healthy and my family is safe. And I think there are a lot of people who could use help out there. So if people have their local nonprofits that support, you know, things in need, I think donating to them or the Red Cross is also a great option. And now Paul is going to recommend a movie. <laughs> a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah. Paul, what's your pick of the week? <laughs> Just for the week for him. <laughs> yeah, so uh, nothing nearly that nice. I, I'm going to recommend the, the 2017 movie Baby Driver, if you've not seen that yet. So it's the, the Edgar Wright movie who did Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and um, Scott, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. He's done a lot of great movies, but this is the one that just recently came out that is probably noteworthy for an amazing soundtrack that a lot of the movies actually synced up to. So technically, it's fantastic to watch. has a lot of great actors in it. So Kevin Spacey and John Hamm uh, and Jamie Foxx. And it's fast moving, well paced and just a delight to watch. And like I said, the soundtrack's worth, I think, watching alone. So I am recommending Baby Driver and also donate to a charity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> OK, wonderful. Stuart, did you have anything? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and, and throw out a pick of the week. Um, so my pick of the week this week is it's a book by by Patrick Rothfuss is called The Name of the Wind. It's the first in a, a series of three books. It's a it is a fantasy novel. But it's just so eloquently written, and the uh, the prose is just so ex exceptionally poetic, and just it's just a really good book. Um, and I, I think the, uh, the 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 perspective that's taken in the book is 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 quite moving. So um, definitely two thumbs up. The name of the wind. Thank you. And I am gonna, for interest of time, skip my pick of the week. And uh, this episode is an episode on 
medical marijuana or cannabis, as Dr. Abrams likes us to call it. And the reason we wanted to do this is, A, it was a requested topic, and B, we didn't know much about it, which usually makes for a good episode. Dr. Donald Abrams, MD, is the chief of the Hematology Oncology Division at San Francisco General Hospital, an integrative oncologist at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine and professor of clinical medicine at the University at the University of California, San Francisco. Early in his career, he studied HIV and was one of the original clinical investigators to recognize many of the early AIDS-related conditions. He conducted numerous clinical trials investigating conventional as well as complementary therapies in patients with HIV. In 1992, he was challenged to conduct a trial of cannabis for HIV wasting, and after five years of fighting the government, he received a grant to study the effects of cannabis on the pharmacokinetics of protease inhibitors in patients with HIV, as well as the impact on their viral load and immune system. He has conducted four subsequent state or federally funded clinical trials of inhaled cannabis and recommends it frequently to his patients living with and beyond cancer. We are so excited to be bringing you this show with Dr. Donald Abrams. I hope you enjoy this discussion. This is Dr. Matthew Watto of the Curbsiders here with multiple co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham, Dr. Paul Williams, and Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And with us tonight is Dr. Donald Abrams. Hi, Dr. Abrams. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, as we talked about beforehand, we are going to, despite your your first name being similar to our president, we will, we will be calling you by by the name Donald tonight, if that's okay. And uh, Donald, yeah. <laughs> and Donald, the first question that we always ask our guests is, can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself just so the audience can kind of get a sense of who you are? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Yeah. So I am an oncologist who uh, is trained in integrative medicine and who has done research for the past 20 years with uh, medicinal cannabis. And Donald, is there, a, is there a specific book that you think that all physicians should read? Wow. Uh, I am in a book club, and I love to read fiction, actually, because of what I do every day sort of, you know, makes it necessary for me to read fiction. And uh, there was a great book, and I can't remember the name of it now, so let me think of another one. Um <laughs> You know, it was about a war in one of those countries that, uh, you know, in, I want to say Serbia, Serbia, Croatian war. I don't know. It was just a beautiful book, and it was about physicians and just the horror that that sometimes people see on the front lines of war. And, you know, it just, the physician character was a woman who was really strong, very powerful. She was cutting off limbs. I I can't recall the name of it. I'm sorry, but it's a great book. Well, you can send it to me afterwards, and we can put it in the show notes for the audience. Yeah. Then I read the the a history of a brief marriage, which uh, another war book. I don't do war in general. Uh, my book club makes fun of me because I don't know anything about World War II. But this was uh, about uh, Sri Lanka and the war that they had, and it's just about two young people getting married and and. It's each chapter is like a bodily function, and it was a very powerful, very beautiful, but very intense and painful book. Mm. I don't know for some reason, as an oncologist, those are the sort of things that that speak to me. 
Then there's also When Breath Becomes Air, which is yeah. the book by the neurosurgeon at Stanford who died of uh, metastatic lung cancer, which unfortunately is not fiction, uh, but was also quite mm-hmm. a powerful book. It certainly is. Paul, did you want to ask anything? Um, yeah, since I, Stuart and I are doing the reversal with the questions, <laughs> I, I will ask. Um, is it the best advice that you've ever gotten as a learner? It's advice that I give, and I can't remember if anybody gave it to me, but perfect. in in your career in medicine, to continue to reinvent yourself, I think, keeps us... Uh, my father used to say, a rolling stone gathers no moss, and I think... In my career as a physician, I have continuously sort of reinvented myself by pushing the envelope and going to the edge and uh, moving the envelope forward. And I think that's kept me invigorated and engaged in my career as a physician. Yeah. And do you have a favorite medical app like an Hippocrates or something that you use frequently? I, you know, I am a bit old school and, uh, you know, I would say that the one that I use the most is the the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines. As an oncologist, this uh, is a field that I've been in now for 34 years, but it's really different from when I started. So just to make sure I know what I'm doing, I often uh, use the NCCN guidelines, uh, make sure that I'm telling the fellow the right thing, but, you know, sometimes it's still, you know, I still make a mistake here and there. So far this month, I'm attending, and the fellow and I are keeping track. I got two things wrong, but fortunately, I know always who to ask. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> that's a key. That's a key message for learners, too. I wanted to ask you, because because you do integrative medicine, a lot of our listeners are constantly sending me that they want to know more about this. Where's a great starting point for them, or is there an app or a book that they can read that, that, that you would recommend where they can get information on it? Well, I mean, integrative medicine is a huge thing. Uh, I am very fortunate to have uh, completed the two-year uh, fellowship online from the uh, Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. I think it was a great program. It changed my life. I still go there twice a year to lecture to graduates, and I'm Uh, one of the professors, if you will, that puts together the online education. But also Andrew Weil, through Oxford University Press, has a whole series of textbooks. Uh, Mine with Andrew is Integrative Oncology. There's Integrative Gastroenterology, Integrative Women's Health, Integrative Men's Health, Integrative Psychiatry. So if you have a specialty and you want to sort of learn about, you know, what's going on in integrative medicine, integrative cardiology. They're, they're all there. Oxford University Press Series. Great. Thank you. Well, let's move on to talking about medical marijuana, because this has been a topic that we've all wanted to, to discuss for a long time. And Molly, did you want to start off with a case? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm seeing more and more women and more and more patients like this. I work in women's health, so it's a lot of women. But our case today is a... Um, MM is a 62-year-old woman with a history of breast cancer, and she's now treated with an aromatase inhibitor, and she also has some background osteoarthritis. And she's struggling with aching and stiffness in her hands, her shoulders, her knees, and her hips. And a friend suggested that she try some medical marijuana, and she'd like her provider's um, opinion about its safety and its efficacy. So, yeah, so that's a a patient that I would say that the evidence supports uh, acupuncture. 
just FYI to be integrative and oncologic about it. Uh, the thing about medical cannabis, which I prefer to call it than marijuana because of the history of, of that word, is that it's difficult to find data to support really any use because of our country's belief that cannabis is a Schedule One substance which has high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use. The only legal source of cannabis is from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, if you want to do research. And NIDA has a congressional mandate that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. <laughs> so if you, <clears throat> yeah. So if you want to study the benefits mm -hmm. of cannabis in patients with aromatase inhibitor-related uh, musculoskeletal symptoms, you can use NIDA cannabis, but you have to be funded somewhere else. Huh. And so when we look at the data available in the medical literature on the health effects of cannabis, most of it is harm because that's what NIDA funds and that's what NIDA provides cannabis for. Very little do we find on benefit. So THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol to be specific, is the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis. Cannabidiol has been elevated to this level of magical medicine by my friend Sanjay Gupta, uh, who featured CBD uh, in his three-part series, Weed, Weed 2, and Weed 3, showing young children <laughs> stopping their seizures on television if they got a drop of CBD in their mouth. Right. So CBD is not psychoactive, but that might not be the right word because it is psychoactive to a degree that it's mm -hmm. it relieves anxiety and can be sedating or can be energizing. So it does have psychoactivity, but it actually doesn't complex with the cannabinoid receptor in the brain, which THC does. Right. So CBD has gotten some a lot of press as a, quote, anti-inflammatory and analgesic. So a woman like this patient that you're describing might benefit from a cannabis product that is CBD dominant. Many uh, dispensaries here in California where we've had legal cannabis for the last 21 years can actually provide patients with cannabis this is, that is higher in Delta 9 THC or higher in cannabidiol or CBD. But these are just two of 140 cannabinoids in the plant and we still don't know anything about 138 other cannabinoids and what their potential medical benefit is. Mm. So the patient definitely might benefit from trying a cannabinoid therapy. Which one or how to take it? So these older women, not that 62 is old, mind you, <laughs> but I see a lot of these patients who tell me that eating is good and smoking is bad. So they go to the dispensary and they, they buy a baked product and they're told only eat a quarter of the cookie. And they do and nothing happens. So they eat another quarter of the cookie and nothing happens. So they eat the whole cookie. And then they call me three days later after a visit <laughs> to the emergency room with a dysphoric reaction saying, I'm never going to do that again. So the difference between inhaling and ingesting cannabis is important to know because when you when you eat it, the bioavailability is low and variable, and the peak plasma concentration occurs in two and a half hours. Also, when you eat it, the delta-9 THC 
when it does its first pass metabolism through the liver, gets converted to an even more psychoactive 11-hydroxy metabolite. Mm. So that's why, and the, the half-life when taken by mouth is 20 to 30 hours. When you inhale THC, the peak plasma concentration is reached in two and a half minutes, and mm. it dissipates quite rapidly over the next 30 minutes, and much less of the 11-hydroxy psychoactive metabolite is formed because you have less first-pass metabolism mm. through the liver. So I always alert my patients to the fact that if you want better control over the onset, the depth, and the duration of the effect, inhale it, vaporize it, smoke it in a bong. And if you find a product that works for you, then maybe oral gives you a more prolonged and sustained effect. Donald, I, I wanted to try and just summarize a little bit of, of what you talked about there for the audience who might not be familiar with the cannabinoids. And because when I was reading this, it, it took me a little while to get my head around it. So the cannabis, okay. you, have, you have the cannabis plant, and you're saying that the two main cannabinoids are THC, which is centrally active and has most of the psychoactive effects of marijuana, and then CBD is more of a anti-inflammatory, more peripheral, it acts more in the periphery and is thought to maybe even block some of the psychoactive effects from what I was reading, or at least it's touted that way. And you're saying that the big reason that people have to look out for the oral ingestion is because they get that first pass, it take, first of all, the onset is longer, so they might get kind of tired of waiting and take too much. But then right. when it gets metabolized by the liver, it, it gets converted to a even more psychoactive metabolite of THC. And that's where people end up in the ER because they, you know, they probably overdose. didn't know what they're doing yeah. and they, they overdose. I did read that you can't overdose on marijuana the way that you can, like fatally overdose the way that you can on other drugs and because there's no brainstem receptors for cannabinoids, CBD1, right? Right. right. The cannabinoid receptors are not present in high concentration in the brainstem as the opioid receptors are. Right. Hmm. And another, you, you mentioned that CBD and THC are the main mm -hmm. cannabinoids. Again, those are the ones that are common or currently the most studied, but there sure. are, again, over a hundred in the plant. And I think it would be useful to just talk about maybe the main things. Uh, so we talked about ingestibles. We talked about the plant that you can smoke and then can you talk about what other formulations are out there that our patients might have access to and might be asking us about? Well, gee, I think that depends on where you live. There are some Great. states where, yeah, only CBD is available in some states, which is unfortunate in my opinion, because I don't think that's the main medicine. I do think THC is the main uh, medicine. But in in San Francisco, for example, I'm, I do a first-year course now for the medical students in our new jazzy inquiry curriculum, and I do have a dispensary bring samples so that uh, we call it a, a virtual visit to a dispensary. <laughs> and I was sort of blown away by what they bring because I don't get to visit a dispensary because I don't have, you know, a, a card in California. Mm -hmm. But there are all sorts of products. There are under-the-tongue sprays. There are tinctures. There are topical prep. Uh, preparations. There are chewing gums. There are potato chips. You know, <laughs> they brought potato chips to the to the class. 
you know, there are suppositories. There are, you know, do we know anything about the absorption or the kinetics of the use of these agents? The answer is really no, you know, because they haven't been studied. Right. And I, I heard that the the formulations that they claim when they actually study them, it's it's a low percentage that actually have what they're saying they have at a lot of these dispensaries. Like maybe they, they might have more or less of C, the CBD to THC ratio or whatever else they're claiming. So it's it's just not strongly regulated the way it would be if you were getting a drug at a, at a normal pharmacy. So, so what, what are your thoughts on dronabinol versus medical cannabis? So, because so, I don't, I don't have access to medical cannabis. I've got access to dronabinol, and so there are a few things that I use that for. But I just want to get your your overall thoughts on dronabinol. So, dronabinol was initially licensed and approved in 1986 for treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and it, the indication was expanded in 1992 uh, to treat the anorexia associated with AIDS wasting. Dronabinol is Delta-9 THC in sesame oil, and as a student of integrative medicine, I really am attracted to traditional Chinese medicine. And in traditional Chinese medicine, they use the whole plant, the whole botanical, because they believe that extracting a single compound from it removes that compound from the yin and yang that the plant provides. So I think the other cannabinoids and terpenoids and flavonoids, the other physiologically active components of the plant in cannabis do stuff to support the beneficial activities of THC and downplay some of the adverse effects. And when you remove it from that stroma, you have a very different medicine. I haven't ever really found people that benefit or enjoy Delta-9 THC. Can I ask, so this is... I feel like I only understand this topic really fully in the abstract. So practically speaking, a uh-huh. patient comes to the office, they have a clear medical indication for for cannabis. What's the process from there? Like how does the prescription versus the actual dispensing of the medication actually happen? Like I just I don't understand fully. Like I know that dispensaries exist, but yeah. can you just sort of talk me through how the process goes from prescription to delivery of the actual yeah. medication? Again, again, we cannot prescribe cannabis. I can prescribe it because I have a Schedule One license, so my participants in my research projects on prescribing cannabis. What we can do in California is write a recommendation. So I write a letter on UCSF stationery saying that I've seen the patient and discuss with them the potential use of cannabis for these symptoms related to cancer. And I have checkbox, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, pain, other. And uh, if this patient chooses uh, to use cannabis, I will continue to follow them. I then sign it and date it and often denote a caregiver so that if the patient is unable to visit the dispensary, the caregiver can access cannabis on their behalf. They then take the letter to the dispensary. I have no idea what products the dispensary has. I say, ask the so-called bud tender what (laughs) they, that's what they're called, what they they feel would work best in your situation and try it. Yeah. Do the bud tenders have special training or I, I feel oh, almost silly good, asking that, but yeah, <laughs> it's like first the pharmacist training. And telling them to say, give, give them what the pharmacist thinks that they would recommend. Like I just, yeah. so what does, so, what does this person do? Yeah. So, so I was called by a think tank that was working with one of our local dispensaries and they said 
they were working on trying to improve physician dispensary interactions. And they said to me basically the point that we're all trying to make. Dr. Abrams, if you have a depressed patient, you write them a prescription for Wellbutrin, 250 milligrams, number 90, take three QHS, or Paxil, 10 milligrams, number 30, take one POQD. They take it to the pharmacy, and that's what the pharmacy dispenses. You write us a recommendation mm -hmm. for a patient with depression, and they go to the dispensary. They say, oh, you're depressed. You want Zoloft, Paxil, or Wellbutrin? How much and what size? You know, that's the way it works currently because there is no data to answer the question. And, and, and I think that these cannabinoid receptors that we've talked about, just like everything else, it's going to be pharmacogenomics. So your CB1 receptor is going to have different SNPs than mine and then Molly's. And so you're going to smoke cannabis and nothing's going to happen. And Molly's going to always get euphoric and I'm going to get paranoid. <laughs> so I don't think it's just the cannabis. I think it's also our pharmacogenomics. So sure. I was recently invited to South Africa to sort of testify uh, in support of making cannabis a medicine. And, and the defense expert witness said, cannabis is not a medicine because it hasn't been through stage one, two, three, and four. And it hasn't done this and it hasn't done that. And you know what? It's true. I don't think cannabis is ever going to be a medicine. I think cannabis is a botanical and it's a very useful folk medicine that's been a medicine in that respect for 3,000 years. And I don't think we're ever going to be able to put it through phase one, two, and three because there are so many different cannabises, you know, the high THC, the high CBD, the sativa, indica. I was just at the International Association of Cannabinoid Medicine meeting, and I was discussing this with an Israeli who said, no, cannabis is not a medicine, it's a modality. I think that's correct. And do you have some specific conditions or symptoms that you find it's most beneficial for? Sure. I just listed them on my letter that I just wrote for you. <laughs> yeah. I see cancer patients. <laughs> Believe it or not, despite the fact that dronabinol, Delta 9 THC, was licensed in 1986 for treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, there are no clinical trials that demonstrate a benefit of cannabis. I always say I need a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial to tell me that cannabis is an effective antiemetic, like I need a randomized placebo-controlled trial to tell me that penicillin is an antibiotic. <laughs> the, the number of patients over the 34 years that I've treated for cancer have used cannabis successfully to control their nausea and vomiting is infinite. I mean, I have emails all the time. I make a slide of an email from a 48-year-old colon cancer patient who used cannabis, and it's, he said it's the only thing that treated his chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and allowed him to attend his children's school functions. Nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite. Cannabis is the only antiemetic that also increases appetite. Pain, I mentioned cannabis is useful for uh, chronic pain. I've studied it in patients with HIV-related peripheral neuropathy, and other people have studied it in other peripheral neuropathies, a situation, as you know, which is difficult to treat, and it seems to work. Uh, in association with opiates, I did a small pharmacokinetic interaction study that showed that cannabis is synergistic, providing increased pain relief, even though it did not alter the pharmacokinetics of the uh, sustained-release opiate. Uh, it provided 
added pain relief when added to sustained release opiates. I find it useful for sleep, for depression, and anxiety in my cancer patients. Now, it's approved in Canada and the United Kingdom. A sublingual cannabis extract is approved for spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. Hmm. So that's an indication that I don't often see in my oncology practice. I think I was one of the authors of the 2017 health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids uh, from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Uh, 16 of us reviewed all of the literature published in the medical literature since 1999 on the health effects, both beneficial and not, of cannabis and cannabinoids. And that was published in January of this year, and it's a very important and very useful volume. And Donald, I, I wanted to just point out for the audience, there there's many very good review articles which we can link to. There's one in Annals of Internal Medicine this year. There was one in JAMA either 2015 or 2016. 2015, Whiting, yeah. 2015, exactly. That's the one. And the limitations of a lot a lot of these studies were were well done or as well done as they could be but some of the limitations are just like the formulations differed and some of the endpoints they were looking at differed it's just very hard to study because there's so many potential products and if you're trying to study the plant it's very hard to know exactly what people are getting so that that just adds that degree of complexity to it but a lot of people are using these and and finding finding help from it I know we do have some concerns about the harms of this, and I think we should use some of our time now to talk about that because I, I know you have to get off the call soon. So can you talk a little bit about what harms that, that we should be able to counsel our patients on when they're going to be using cannabis or even some of the synthetic synthetic products, cannabinoids? I personally believe that cannabis is a very safe product, uh, again, much safer than many of the other, quote, substances of abuse out there or much safer than tobacco, alcohol, and even sugar, which people take <laughs> yeah. in large quantities every day. So, uh, you know, cannabis can be psychoactive. So people that are not expecting that need to be aware that they might lose uh, some control of some of their uh, cognitive functions and they might, you know, be in a different headspace. Uh, cannabis is can accelerate the heart rate and can increase and decrease blood pressure. So I find older people with cardiac histories are people that I recommend maybe be careful using cannabis, especially because if you get postural hypotension and you're older, the risk of falling is increased and mm -hmm. fracturing a bone, which can be devastating in elderly people. Driving is something that was a big deal in our report. Uh, the increase of automobile accidents increases twofold if people drive under the influence of cannabis. The incidence of automobile accidents increases eightfold if people drive under the influence of alcohol. Mm -hmm. I think we haven't seen the bottom line answer on what happens in states where cannabis is now recreationally available. I wanted to break in with, I, I was mentioning this to Molly beforehand. I, I've heard people say this, uh, and a patient said this to me last week. He goes, he goes, I don't smoke cigarettes. I smoke marijuana. And he's like, I know, I know that's probably each, each joint is equal to smoking five cigarettes. You know, he, 
So has there that's been any evidence? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, no. So that's like an urban legend. But is, what what are the studies saying about long term function uh, or long term safety for the lungs? So uh, Pletcher et al. from UCSF did a study in young people and actually found increased uh, benefits to uh, lung volumes in people who use cannabis compared to those who didn't. Uh, Donald Tashkin is a colleague at the University of California, Los Angeles, who's been funded by NIDA for 40 years to study the potential harmful effects of cannabis on the lungs. And the only thing that he could find was perhaps an increased incidence of chronic bronchitis. Mm. He finds that people who smoke cannabis and tobacco have lower rates of COPD, perhaps because of the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties of cannabis. He also did a, his piece de resistance study was a study of 1,356 upper aerodigestive malignancies in the Los Angeles basin. And he found that people who use cannabis regularly had a 27% reduction in the risk of lung cancer compared to people who never smoked anything. Wow. A little bit shocking, but what? also has been confirmed uh, in data from Kaiser uh, and in animal models. What? So again, this has led many of my patients to believe that cannabis, this is, this is not the only thing that's led, but there's a lot of internet lore that cannabis may have some anti-cancer activity. And again, Tashkin's work does not support any increased risk of lung cancer. And in fact, in our committee report from the National Academies, uh, we reviewed a number of meta-analyses of both lung cancer and head and neck cancer, showing no evidence of increased risk of either in people who use cannabis. I did look up in the literature, there was, it, this was from current atherosclerosis reports from, I believe it was from this year, it was a French a French group of researchers looking at the cardiovascular risk, and they basically, it was just like a, a letter, it wasn't even like the full study in there, but it was a letter, and it said they saw some possible signal for increased risk of ischemic stroke, and maybe trending towards increased risk of, of MI, but they didn't even publish all the data in there. I think you have uh, to like email the author to get the supplemental material. So Yeah. Look at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine report. Okay. There's a whole chapter on cardiovascular effects. Okay. And a whole chapter on cancer effects. And to be uh, fair, I do want to say that there are three articles published in the literature, all came out at the same time, suggesting an increased incidence of non-seminomatous germ cell tumors of the testis in people who use cannabis frequently. And one explanation of that, that sort of uh, I take from the, the speaker who came to talk to us about automobile accident increases is who, well, he said, who gets into automobile accidents? Young men. Who smokes cannabis? Young men. Similarly, who gets testicular cancer? Young oh, men. men. <laughs> who, who smokes cannabis? young men. So right. these epidemiologic associations yeah. may be strongly associated, but may not be actually causative. Right. I guess one question I have is, is sort of how you see future research possibly going in terms of, we talked more about symptom management, um, but I guess I'm interested in some of those potential anti-inflammatory or anti-cancer effects of cannabis. And I wonder if, if you know of anything coming down the pipeline or it's yeah, well, you know, I was just in Cologne. Uh, every two years in Cologne, Germany, we have the International Association of Cannabinoid Medicine uh, Conference. And 
interesting research coming out of Israel looking at Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease, which are apparently responsive to cannabinoids as well. In my situation, again, this question about cancer and do cannabinoids have any potential activity against malignant cells, we know in in vitro and in animal models, there are strong signals that cannabinoids uh, inhibit cancer cells, decrease angiogenesis, and decrease the ability of cancer cells to metastasize. We don't have any evidence in humans, however, of anti-cancer activity. And what mm-hmm. pains me the most as an oncologist are the patients that wait six months to see me in my integrative oncology practice who are treating a potentially curable malignancy with highly concentrated THC or CBD oils because somebody told them that it can cure cancer. And it doesn't, we don't have any evidence that it does. And I have not been impressed that it does in the cases that I've seen. So I think more research needs to be done there as well. And there, you know, there is a huge number. Uh, uh, PTSD, you know, I always say, again, I need a placebo controlled trial to tell me that cannabis treats PTSD. I mean, because look at all the warriors that come back from war using cannabis. They're using it for PTSD. Interesting, we, we don't like young people to use cannabis, but autism and ADHD also seem to be areas that are potentially hmm. responsive to cannabinoids. And certainly all these young children with these re- refractory seizure disorders are getting some benefit from at least uh, CBD. Ma- yeah. Oh, I was going to say you—you you just uh, the the question about the in- inflammatory bowel disease and the autism were things we had gotten on Facebook. I was going to ask Molly, were there any other questions from Facebook that that might be able to be quickly answered here towards the end? Sure. I guess we had um, one question about cannabis-induced hyperemesis syndrome, and just kind of um, maybe for for people who aren't familiar with that, if you could just give us yeah. a one-liner definition and talk about prevalence or frequency. yeah, no, it's it's something that. Actually, I, I was seeing a, a a patient at Clacksburg General. Is that what we call Cash it? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Catch uh, It should be Clacksburg, though. <laughs> yeah, who was incre- uh, patient with cancer, cancer, increasing her dose of one of these uh, these cannabinoid oils, and she was uh, having a lot of vomiting and nausea. And during our clinic visit, she vomited twice. She had to leave the room twice. And I was with a a, a fellow. Uh, that I was training. And when the patient left, she said, could that be that cannabis hyperemesis syndrome? And it never even dawned on me. And I said, wait a minute. So I ran out after the patient. I said, stop your cannabis and see if that makes this better. So this hyperemesis, again, cannabis is an anti-emetic, but idiosyncratically, some patients may have a reaction where they, they vomit and they vomit and they vomit. And the only thing that seems to calm it down is taking a warm shower or warm bath Hmm. and or stopping the cannabis. So, you know, it's a rare syndrome. It's uh, not frequently seen, but in people who are using cannabis and it can happen at any time during the course of cannabis use, it's something to think about and question whether rather than just taking a warm shower, maybe they should stop using cannabis. So Donald, I mean, all this sounds, I mean, this this sounds nearly magical, and I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a skeptic. I'll just be frankly honest. 
Uh-huh. And uh, one of the studies that I have saved, and I, I, I'm sure you you know about this study. This is actually from the U- University of Northern British Columbia. Columbia. This is published in 2013. It looks at marijuana usage and the risk of lung cancer um, in conscripts and found that those who were designated as heavy users, now granted this is more than 50 times in, in their life, uh, followed them over a 40-year period. And this is when from they, Sweden. This study is from Sweden. Yes, yes, this, from Sweden. This is a Swedish conscript study that was discounted yep. by the people that did meta-analyses because they asked them so, at age 18 about their use of cannabis and looked at their lung cancer 40 years later without knowing anything about their use of tobacco or okay. cannabis in the intervening 40 years. So thumbs down to that one. That was okay, discounted. So, so discounted. Discredited, okay. discredited, yeah. Okay. I mean, look at, look at Rastafarians in Jamaica. They have one half the risk of lung cancers as Americans. Hmm. Donald, this is this is awesome stuff, and I would love to hear you shoot down Stewart's uh, oh, suggestion. No, no, well, when he said, when he says it sounds like magic, think about it. If this plant were first discovered today in the Amazon, pharmaceutical companies would be jumping over themselves. Oh, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm it sure of it. Yeah, right. it's a it's an amazing modality of treatment for many different things. So along, and it the- was it's been a medicine in the United States. I mean, it's been a medicine in the world for a lot longer. Up until 1942, cannabis was available in the United States for physicians to prescribe to patients. It only hasn't been a medicine in this country for 75 years, and that's the duration of time that most of us have been trained in, and so we've been trained in the eras of reefer madness, right. and the Reagans just <laughs> say no, and that's, that's where we get our beliefs and feelings about cannabis. Right, and it's just it's pummeled in my head with the dare to but, say no, right? I think this is a good place to get your take home points because I, I wanna let you get dinner and get to your get to your evening. You don't need to hang out with us any more than <laughs> been fun, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you're having fun. So if you had to give like two or three take home points for our audience who are mainly primary care providers, what uh, what would those be? Well, I think just as I said, we've not learned about cannabis because we live in this era of prohibition. I mean, do you? How many of you learned in medical school that the CB1 receptor is the single most densely populated receptor in the human brain? Right. I mean, they don't teach us about that in medical school. Can you imagine? So, I would recommend that people educate themselves about cannabis. There are online courses. There are CME courses. There are international cannabinoid research society meetings, international association of cannabinoid medicine meetings. If you want to use this as a modality of treatment for patients for uh, uh, many different indications that that are not yet proven with published medical literature, there are ways to learn about it and help benefit patients who may benefit greatly. Awesome. I think that's a great, great place to end. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Yeah, thanks so much. But yeah, I, can't, so much. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't detach from the program. I don't think let's see. Oh, maybe I can. <laughs> All right. No, I can't. You're going to have to turn us off. I can't. Turn I could, it off. I could do it for you. Okay. Okay. Thank turn you so much. Have Bye. a good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Man, that's, dude, he knows the literature surprisingly oh, well. Yeah. That is <laughs> super impressive. You'd almost have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm still a skeptic. 
you, still a mean skeptic. that you think it might cause cancer or you just well just no think I, that... I just i i just because it 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 okay so so the cannabinoids themselves uh they they still slow ciliary action and so that would that that should over time if someone is a heavy user now granted how how many people are smoking a pack per day of of joints right that's probably <laughs> not happening <laughs> Um, now, if someone were truly smoking a pack per day of joints, I guarantee you, guarantee you that their risk for having lower respiratory tract infection is going to be higher because it suppresses ciliary action. And because well, of that, that it increases bronchitis. Yeah. So it, so it's going to increase your risk for lung cancer over a long period of time just from scarring from from chronic obstructive or from uh, chronic infections and obstruction beca because of the decreased uh, ciliary action. It's going to. But the problem is. How many people are smoking a pack of joints per day? It's just not happening. But I, but I think it's that that's that's a concern of mine. That if you make it recreationally like available, that it's going to increase usage over time, logarithmic or probably linearly, as you allow people to smoke it recreationally. And you know, might man. see. You, I mean, you might, I mean, you might. In Colorado, it hasn't really increased the rates, and actually, in young people, it's decreased the rates to have it be recreationally available. Hmm. I don't think it's going to be just because it's now available that people are going to go from instead of smoking one joint a day to smoking like 10 joints a day. I just don't buy that. I, I think they're they're going to get high the same amount. If they're using it to get high, they're going to get high the same amount as they were before. And and maybe that those levels, as far as they've – I mean the, the literature did not say anything about – increased risk of cancer. Uh, that's that's one study. But if you look at the, there's several systematic reviews. Yeah. It, it just seems all pretty benign stuff that they were finding. Most of the stuff was like cognitive side effects. I think the motor vehicle thing is the biggest concern I would have for patients. And yeah, then the, it, uh, but there's a lot of beneficial effects from what it says here. I mean, I, I do, I, again, part of me just says, this has got to be biased. It's got to be biased. It's got to be biased. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm having a really hard time swallowing this pill. Well, look at well, the. I think the bias goes both ways. Like, I think that's. I'm sure it does. This. I think there's the the issue with marijuana, at least in my mind, is that it's the advocates seem very uncritical, and the critics seem to not willing to think about any of the positive effects. Right, there doesn't right. seem to be a whole lot of middle ground, and I think there's a marketing problem that if you write, yes, I think this patient benefits from cannabis use, and then they take their paper to a bud tender and get potato chips, like that's <laughs> yeah, bonkers. But, like that's just yeah, like that's not how agree, it's not how therapeutics work. So I think that we have to find some kind of middle agree. ground before I can buy into it. I, I, exactly. I mean, you, you you smell what I'm cooking here, Paul. It's I'm the same. I'm picking up what you're putting I, down for like yeah. two weeks in a row, which I find very worrisome. It's crazy. I, don't <laughs> I mean, I, I and that's exactly what was going through my going through my mind. I mean, guy comes and sees me. He's he's nauseous, and I send him to a bun bud tender. He's gonna walk walk away with like a bag of potato chips. It just it just seems <laughs> like just that 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 thought just seems so antithetical to. Um, just science in general. I mean, it's not studied. It's not. I I, I know. Is it going to be studied? No, it's not. I get it. It just seems. I don't know. Molly, what do you think? I mean, I think it's it's very different from our typical training in Western medicine, and I I definitely understand that idea of feeling uncomfortable with. You know, we're used to having a very set prescription that the examples he gave I thought were great of, you know, the patient with the antidepressant. And Except for 200 milligrams. We're used milligrams. to having a lot of, yeah. Like, what is that? Uh, but we're having, you know, that we're, we're used to having sort of control over it. And I think the plant medicine model almost is doesn't put us at, as strongly in control of it. And so it's a different sort of paradigm for doctors to work in that the patient does get to try it out and say, nah, I want a little less, I want a little more, I don't like that, I do like that. 
Um, and then it's kind of feeling it out and testing it out patient by patient. So it's, it's certainly a different paradigm from what we're used to practicing in, but I, I have plenty of patients who, who use it and say they get benefit. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'm sure some people try it and don't like it or have negative side effects. I mean, it's like any medication, not for everyone. I think we can uh, go ahead into the outro. I, I, I don't think anyone's going to sway Stuart and Paul to uh, start prescribing it to everybody tomorrow. Not, not <laughs> anytime not soon. Uh, I just, I, I think we just need to figure out where we stand. I'm, I'm, I'm very pro dronabinol. Part of that's because it's, you know, you can study it. You can look at some of the effects. You can, I've got some quantifiable data to suggest, at least for some specific patients, it does have benefit. Right. Now, granted, I'm not going to use it like, you know, I'm not going to throw it out like, like candy, but certainly, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that for especially my chronic opiate, uh, op- opiate users that I could potentially use that to decrease their dosage of opiates. Right. That's how, that's where I really find one of the main, main things that I would find this attractive right. for is where if you have somebody, they're on opioids, they're, they're not getting great, they're great relief and they're escalating their dose. And maybe you right. can throw in a, a cannabis or, or dronabinol and then kind of right. help, help their pain and yeah. maybe stop that cycle where they just keep their dependence is building or their tolerance is building and they, and they're getting bigger and bigger doses. You know, I, I've had some benefit when other things failed. But for the most part, I, I would have a hard time sitting an Alzheimer's patient home and saying, hey, go smoke some joints tonight and see, tell me how, how, how it did. You know, oh, that's just, exactly the patient I'm okay with it for, actually. Yeah, <laughs> what are we hanging on to? Or your potato chips, right? All right. Let's, uh, let's do the outro here. Sorry, could I just plug one last thing? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people don't really know what the laws are in their state. And so um, yeah. we'll link to a, a website uh, from Normal, um, N-O-R-M-L, which is a pro-marijuana advocacy group. And you can search by state and see both in terms of recreational use and um, medical use in for CBD or THC, what's allowed and sort of the process for prescribing, if that's something that you decide you want to... One of those JAMA articles that was in the show notes actually has a really great table that, by state of what's what's okay. allowed, what the indications are for. So yeah, there's there's a couple it's things where we put that together. Rapidly. It's really nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing sure you is. a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show, you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll where you will receive copies of our wonderfully done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. So send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com and let us know what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Go ahead, Molly. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> and I'm Molly Hoytblind. You know, you know, Paul, I actually want some potato chips now. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. I'm like Ron Burgundy. I'm just like reading the teleprompter exactly. (laughs)